Thank you, Nancy, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. We're continuing a series called Women in the Bible, and this morning, in light of the peacemaking passage that was read, we'll be looking together at the life of Abigail. So you'll find her in 1 Samuel 25 after I pray, and then we'll pray together and then look at the text. Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning. Thank you that uh, you are inviting us to be people of peace in a world filled with hostility. And Father, as we are mindful of the violence that is in families, in neighborhoods, in our city, in our nation, in our world, my prayer, Father, this morning is that we would become people who are taking steps toward peace. And we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Ryan Kelly is the winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Photography. His photo was taken his last day at work as a photojournalist. He now works for a brewery doing uh, PR work uh, and social media stuff. But the last, basically, the last photo he took was in Charlottesville at the, at the moment when this car had driven into a crowd of people, ultimately killing a, a woman. And I would show you the picture, but it's, it's a pretty poignant and even violent picture. And for some of you who are sensitized to violence, I elected not to show you the picture. There's a guy, he's been hit by the car, he's up in the air, turned upside down. And the, the photo, I believe the reason it won is because it captures so well the dissonance between our longing for peace and the reality of violence in our world. Because the signs that are there at this white nationalist rally with also counter-protesters were signs with things on them such as love wins, black lives matter, it's time for peace, put an end to violence. And right in the midst of that, here's this violent act that eventuates not only in the death of one man but in extreme violence, extreme violence, one party against another. And it begs a question, uh, what is Christ's desire for us as disciples in a world where violence is often met with violence, in a world where justice is often not restorative but retributive, in a world where uh, instead of even justice, we often escalate to vengeance? How, what's our calling in the midst of that? And the answer is found in a woman in 1 Samuel chapter 25 named Abigail. So I'm going to give you the story here very briefly. Uh, there's three players in the story, and if you uh, studied literature or you follow plot lines, you like movies, you know that there are protagonists and antagonists, the, bad, the good guys and the bad guys. In this story, there's two antagonists and one pro, there's two bad guys, and there's no good guy because the good guy is not a guy. The good guy is Abigail, a woman, right? So here's a story. Uh, in... in uh, 1 Samuel 24, David has been anointed king, but the existing king is unwilling to relinquish the throne, and so Saul has attempted to kill David a few times. David has had opportunities uh, to actually kill Saul. He was right there and had his knife. He could have done it. He didn't do it. He said, no, I will not. The problems are not solved with violence. That's David in 1 Samuel 24. No. I won't kill this guy. I, won't, I will never kill the Lord's anointed. If God wants me to be king, then God will give me the throne. I won't resort to violence. However, uh, as you may know, 
when you do something that is a kind of an act of self-denial, like choosing here uh, uh, to turn the other cheek rather than react in violence, if you do that often enough, like your willpower actually diminishes. Anyone on a diet in the room knows that, right? Like no chocolate, no chocolate, no chocolate, no chocolate, and then you go to Cheesecake Factory and it's like, okay, I've been good long enough, boom, right? <laughs> similar, kind of similar mindset here. It's all doom, 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 doom. And now in the next chapter, uh, the situation is you got a guy named Nabal and he's rich, has a bunch of uh, sheep, thousands, and, and uh, when Nabal and his men were itinerant and their sheep were grazing, David protected Nabal. Now, the table turned, David's men are in need of food. They're hungry, they're on the run, Saul's trying to kill them. And, and so they're on the run and they, they come to Nabal's men and they say to Nabal's men, hey, um, remember, you know, we helped you, now we're hungry, would you help us? Nabal says, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, no, <laughs> get out of here. So then, uh, David's men go and tell David this. David says, oh, there's an easy solution. We're going to kill all of them. We're just going to kill them, right? So, hey, arm, everybody get armed. So David takes his sword, and 400 other guys take their swords. They're gonna go white, and, and David says, the sun will not go down until they're all dead. This is the guy who just, the day, you know, the day before, the chapter before, refused to kill Saul. No, no, you know, I'm not a, a violent man. Well, when you're hungry, you become a violent man. You become... <laughs> Hangry is the word, right? So you're hungry, you're angry, and, and now he's, he, he's going to solve the problem with violence. Well, it's not going to be healthy. It's not going to be healthy. So there's this escalating pattern of violence. You've got Nabal, who is, the NIV Bible describes him as surly and mean. So he's rich, surly, mean, arrogant, and he has a drinking problem. And you've got David over here who is a man after God's own heart, but is not having a good day. <laughs> his blood sugar's low, he's hungry, his men are hungry. He's, he's treated these guys justly, and now they're not going to treat him justly in return, and David's going to take vengeance. So here's the deal. Both of these guys are, are in the wrong. And this, before we go any further, I'm just going to stop and say this is very important. Because it's tempting for all of us in the room at various times in our lives to look at a situation of violence. We see a police shooting. We see two guys in Starbucks and it's, a, it's an unjust situation. Whatever it is, it's overwhelmingly tempting for us to stop seeing ourselves as part of the problem and only part of the solution. Yeah, I'm up here. I have the moral high ground and here's these idiots. If people would just behave sanely, like I'm not part of the problem, people just need to get their act together. And here's the answer, no. There's a guy uh, who was involved in the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the architect of Hitler's genocide project against the Jews. Uh, Yehul Diner, Jewish guy, he goes in to testify because he was tortured by Eichmann. <laughs> he goes in, he looks at Eichmann. Sorry, Eric, you're Eichmann this morning. <laughs> yeah. He goes, he looks at Eichmann and he realizes that this is a normal guy. And that then... Uh, he says, regarding himself, hey, if I were in his situation, I think I would have ended up doing the same thing. And then he get, when he gets up to testify, this is what he says. Eichmann is in all of us. It's a famous statement. Like there's blood on all of our hands. None of us are above violence. None, are, uh, uh, none of us are above retribution. 
none, are, none of us are above revenge. So that's a problem. Uh, vi- here's somebody with resources. Here's, here's a group without resources. And the group without resources is asking for help from the group with resources so that everybody has enough. And the group with resources says, no, we're not going to give you anything. And the group without rises up and rebels. This is called revolution. This is 1917 in Russia. This is 1950 uh, with Chairman Mao. This is Pol Pot in Cambodia. This is, this is uh, a lot of what goes on in South and Central America today. Over and over and over again, it's a resource war that leads to an escalation of violence. And violence begets violence, begets violence, begets violence. And then here's the question, how does it end? And here's the answer, Abigail. <laughs> this woman becomes in this story the one who shows us these facets of wisdom that can end the escalating cycle of violence that's in our world today. So she, like her story, very appropriate and practical for us today. So there's three things you see in the story of Abigail uh, that are facets of wisdom. Wisdom that leads to peace. Number one, she responds to revelation. Number two, she makes peace. Number three, she reminds David of his identity, right? Respond to revelation, make peace, remind the one who's about to commit a violent act of his true identity. This de-escalates the situation. So let's look at all three of these. Beginning with this, uh, Abigail responds to Revelation. So uh, I'm going to read now in the text. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you want to follow along. These men of Nabal's, his, his uh, servants, they go to Abigail. One of them goes to Abigail and says, hey, David sent, I'm reading in verse 14, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and Nabal scorned them. These men were very good to us, and we weren't insulted. We didn't miss anything as long as we were with them while we were in the fields. They were protecting us. They were a wall to us by night and day. All the time we were with them. Now, therefore, Abigail, know and consider what you should do, because evil is plotted against Nabal. So this guy goes to Abigail and says, hey, there's trouble. Uh, Nabal has refused to give any resources to David and his men, and David and his men are planning to kill all of us. So, what does she do? Look at verse uh, seven, uh, 17. Uh, he says in verse 17, No one consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And, uh, and by the way, Abigail, and so this guy is speaking to Abigail regarding her husband. By the way, he's a worthless person and no one can speak to him. Don't you love that? Like, uh, hey, here's the problem. None of us can talk your husband down off the ledge here and get him to give away any food. He won't, do, he won't listen to any of us. So Abigail, uh, verse 18, hurried, and then she creates like a gift list for David's men. Watch this. Abigail hurried, took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loads of motor donkeys, says to her young men, come with me, and we're going to go, we're going to see David, we're going to solve this problem now. So here's the first thing I want to see. Disaster is hanging, this is the guy, disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man, no one can talk to him. The servant who brings the situation to Abigail, here's the servant, brings the situation to Abigail. He's a picture of prayer. Do you understand that? Like he sees, oh, 
There's a mess here. I can't solve it. So I'm going to take this to someone who maybe can do something. I'm going to take this to Abigail. Maybe Abigail can help, right? So, So he realizes there's someone who can step in, and he reports to her. And in essence, he's calling out, help, there's a situation. Prayer matters. That's the first thing. But then, more significant in the moment is this, Abigail hears it and says, hey, that's really interesting. Let me get back to you in three days. No. Abigail hears it, and this is what it says. She acted quickly, immediately. As soon as she hears, she takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep, five bags of grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, Trader Joe's festival, right? And and loads this all on a donkey, and she's going to go, and she's going to solve the problem. Hear me, peacemaking comes from people who respond to Revelation. This is, this is the pattern all through history. Like a fire is lit, and when the fire is lit, someone says, that's it. I'm not, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to step in and do what I can. If I die in the process, I die in the process, but I would rather die seeking peace than to do nothing. Very significant, right? So peacemaking comes from people who respond to Revelation. This was William Wilberforce in his, in his attempts to end slavery in, in England. He saw the problem. He acted. Uh, This is uh, the women who begin the homeless shelter here at Bethany. They saw a problem in our city. They acted. There are times in our lives when there's a a next step to take, and we have to take that step. In uh, July of 2016, the lead pastors of Bethany, so that includes myself here at Green Lake and uh, other, other pastors at, you know, West Seattle and North and Northeast and Ballard, we were all together... Uh, over in uh, eastern Washington on a, on a retreat. And so it's the last night, and the week leading up to that retreat had been, uh, the news cycle had been uh, police shooting black men. Not once, but two or three times over the course of the week. Last night, we're, you know, we're sitting around in the house, and it's kind of lighthearted, and we're all kind of joking. And then we, uh, one of our pastors gets a text on his phone that says, hey, there's been a a bunch of policemen shot in Dallas. Maybe you remember this. It's a police shooting. We stopped what we were doing. We turned on this giant TV and we sat there silent for, I don't know, I'm gonna say 30 minutes, 45 minutes, watching what was going on in Dallas, Texas. Uh, violence. Death. And you know what? Uh, we turned the TV off and we were undone. Like this is our, this is our country. Violence, 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 violence. Violence begatting violence. Then we prayed. And then I'd say within a year, we'd formed a key initiative here for Bethany Community Church, which is an initiative regarding racial justice and reconciliation. And it's a big deal. You may or may not be directly involved right now, but know this, this matters. Because this is, this is a, a, a scar on our national legacy. And the, and the church, that's calling the church, to be, we're called to be peacemakers. So we're called to rise up and follow the footsteps of Abigail and be part of the solution. Not passively watching as this continues to escalate and escalate and escalate. And it's worse now than ever. <laughs> and it, it, we can't sit on the sidelines. Martin Luther King said it this way, and I'm quoting him directly now. 
It may well be that in the future, when we repent, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the, quote, good people. Because these are the people who sit around and say, let's just wait and see what happens. Social progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through tireless effort and persistent work and dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation and violence. Did you hear that? Time becomes an ally of violence if we do nothing. So we must help time. We must realize that the time is always right to do right. So hear me, when God speaks and there's a fire lit in you, act, Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Because if you don't do it today, it won't be easier tomorrow to be harder. So this is the first thing. She responds to Revelation and she finds herself in the thick of a story, risking her life. David could have killed her. She's risking her life for the sake of peace. Now here's the second thing to see. She makes peace and it's brilliant. Ephesians chapter 2 uh, reads this way, Christ has broken the dividing wall. So you picture, if you can picture a dividing wall, it's all kinds of dividing walls. It's Jew and Gentile. It's haves and have-nots. It's rich and poor. It's educated and uneducated. Christ has broken the dividing wall, and he's become to us the, the source of peace. How? By destroying enmity. In other words, this party on this side of the wall and this party on this side of the wall are in conflict. That's why there's a wall. <laughs> because without the wall, there'd be a conflict, right? So there's a, there's a wall. And then this is the beautiful wisdom. It says, Christ has destroyed the dividing wall so that we might know peace. Now, how then do we move into this peace that Christ died and rose again to give us? Well, Abigail shows us the way. She does four things. So if you take notes, name these, because these are significant. She go, a, she goes to the source. Like David's the only one who can solve the problem. So she's going to go to David. Two, she humbles herself. Uh, three, she brings gifts. Four, she intercedes. She, so she go, when there's a, look, when there's violence, go to the source. That's the first thing. She goes to the source. Which is interesting, because the conflict is not between her and anyone. Do you understand? It's not, it's, not her, it's not her story. This is what I hear all the time. Oh yeah, whatever. You know, homelessness, not my problem. Race, not my problem. You know, the great dividing wall, not my problem. Violence, not my, nuclear proliferation, not my problem. Oh yeah, listen, if I'm Abigail, it's my problem. So she, because she goes into a, to a situation to save not herself, but other people. Do you hear me? And, and it's the other people who are at risk, not her, but she is in doing this, representing Christ, who stepped into our situation, not to help himself, but to help us. <laughs> so, so, so this is going to the source is the first thing. And then she's going to go meet David. And then once she meets David, look at this. In uh, chapter 25, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed down and fell at his feet. So not only is she going to meet David, but when she meets David, she's not going to meet him as an equal. She will humble himself so that she can intercede on behalf of the situation. She comes, in other words, she comes disarmed. Do you understand? Like I'm, I'm bowing down here. I'm recognizing, David, you have the power here over my life. You could kill me right now. 
So she goes to the, horse, the, the source and she humbles herself and she brings gifts. I've already given you the list, right? You know, wine and nuts and figs and raisins and sheep, all of the good stuff. No broccoli, I'll note. Thanks be to God. So, so, she, so she brings all the good stuff. And then she in, intercedes and confesses. And so listen to this. It, like, this is an amazing little passage. Verse 24. So she falls at his feet. You can picture it. David's got his sword. He's got 40 guys. He's going to kill all of her husband's men. And she falls on the ground. And this is what she says. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. That's her husband. <laughs> so basically, she's throwing her husband under the bus here, right? For as his name is, so is he. Because Nabal means worthless, apparently. <laughs> Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. In other words, I, I, listen, I, Abigail, I didn't know the backstory about your men treating my uh, husband's men so generously. I didn't know anything. But as soon as I knew, I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to, to ignore my husband's intent to violence. So, so, Again, number one, she goes to the source. Who can solve the problem? David. Number two, she humbles herself. She's on her, on her, you know, her face on the ground, kneeling down at David's feet. Like, David, you have power here. I don't. And then she brings the gifts. Look, I provided food. And then she intercedes, right? Hey, I'm asking you, David, to, to break the cycle of violence here. My husband... Left to his own devices, he's a violent man. He's not only a violent, he's a drunk, violent man. I, David, you can break the cycle. So, so I'm, I'm asking you. Now, here's what's interesting. When you look at the pattern of Abigail, right, the four things, go to the source, humble, bring gifts, intercede. This is Jesus. This, she's a picture of Christ. Because what did Christ do? Christ went to the source. Read Philippians 2. Hey, have this attitude in yourselves, disciples of Christ. That's all of us gathered in the room. Have this attitude, disciples, that was also in Christ. What did Christ do? When he saw a mess, he didn't regard heaven a thing to be held on to, but he, look, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus left North Seattle and moved to the central district. Jesus left the rich and moved to the poor. Jesus moved into a situation. Jesus moved in among the addicts, moved in among the lepers, moved in among the what? The, 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 the sinners, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers, people that Jews despised. Jesus is right there, like he's moving in. <laughs> she goes to the source. And if God is going to use us and if we're going to represent Christ... We are not like invited. We're called to be people who cross social divides. We're called to it, all of us in the room. So, so she, she, she moves to the place of the problem. Jesus moves to the place of the problem. She humbles herself. Jesus humbles himself. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, look, took on the form of a servant like he became a man, not just a man, a servant, not just a servant, a slave, not just a slave, a slave obedient, obedient to the point of death, and not just that, but the last night of his life when Jesus uh, is about to be betrayed, 
uh, and then arrested and then tried and executed on the last night, the disciples, like the people who he's poured into for three years, they're arguing about who's going to be greatest. What does Jesus do? It says he took off his garments, put a towel around his waist, knelt down, and washed the disciples' feet. Do you realize how profoundly significant that is? Jesus, who was God, is saying, I am taking on myself the role of the lowest class person in the entire empire. I'm the servant here. That's Jesus. And he does it willingly, and it's that humility that is the act of destroying class dividing walls. That's, the, that's it. Like, we move in. We're not up here. No one's up here. Not as disciples. Jesus is doing the work of the lowest servant. So, so Christ goes to the source. Christ humbles himself. Oh, she gave gifts. Did Christ give gifts? Absolutely. Gifts of healing. Gifts of forgiveness, gifts of hope, gifts of life, gifts of companionship, gifts of wisdom. Oh, and, you know, yeah, but Jesus doesn't intercede. Oh, Hebrews 7.25. Christ, in his resurrected form, ever lives to make intercession for who? Us. Who's praying for you right now? Jesus. Abigail is a picture of Christ. So here's, here's what's on the table. You want to break the cycle of violence? This is where you start. Jesus is your model. Oscar Romero uh, was a priest who was killed by an assassin's bullet while he was leading mass in El Salvador back in the day. And El Salvador was a nation of escalating violence because of the haves and have-nots and before Romero was assassinated, he was speaking once to a group of young people who, in the midst of their poverty, were advocating violence. To, we're going to overthrow our oppressors. Like, and how? Violently. That's how. And this is what, this is what Romero said. He said, listen, dear young people given to violence, you who have already lost your faith in love and think that love cannot solve anything, here's the proof that love solves everything. If Christ had wanted to impose his redemption through armed force or fire or violence, he would have achieved nothing. It would have been useless. There would only be more hatred and wickedness. Why? Because this is Romero speaking now. Violence always begats violence. Learn from history. But going straight to the heart of redemption, Christ tells us on this night, this is my, on the night he was betrayed, this is my commandment. As I've loved you, love one another. And he says more, so that you may see that these are not simply words, stay with me tonight, and when I sweat, uh, when I sweat blood as I observe the evil of humankind and the pain of my own suffering, and tomorrow you'll see me carrying the cross like a silent lamb and dying on Calvary, and rest assured, says Jesus, that I bear no resentment toward anyone. From the depth of my soul on the cross, I will cry out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Let us reflect, sisters and brothers, on this personified gesture of love, and when we're tempted to act with vengeance, resentment, cruelty, bitterness, selfishness, let us not consider the sad example of people who hate one another. <laughs> Rather, raise our eyes toward Christ, who alone is our standard, the peacemaker. Yeah, that's a good word. Romero. You want to break the cycle of violence? That's where it starts. And finally... She makes peace, she, she acts quickly, she makes peace, and she reminds David of his identity. 
At the end of the chapter, she, oh, it's like a prophecy over David. And I'm going to read it, and, and um, it's a, slightly paraphrased, but listen as I read. This is, what, this is what she says. Now, David, let this gift which your maidservant has brought to you, David, be given to the young men who accompany. In other words, go feed them with all this food and forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make you, David, an enduring house. Because you, David, are fighting the battles of the Lord. Evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue and seek your life, David, then your life, David, will be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, God will deal with the lives of your enemies. And when the Lord does for you, David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, then this new appointment as king will never cause you grief or a troubled heart because today you withheld your hand from violence. Yeah, that's a good one. You know what she's doing? She's saying right there, look, David, uh, you're anointed by God. You're called by God. So you don't ever need to resort to violence to take care of yourself because God is for you. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. L leave it in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, says David. And then Abigail intercedes. No, no, vengeance isn't yours, David. Look, retributive justice, no. It's God's business. Restorative justice, that's our business. So what she's doing is so significant is she's kind of holding up a mirror and saying, David, look at who you are. Look at who you are. <laughs> you're anointed by God. You're called. You're heir to the throne. And you're acting as if the fulfillment of that destiny depends on you resorting to violence. It doesn't. You can, you, David, you can actually love your enemies. You can actually turn the other cheek. You're better than this, David. I'll just pause here and say something that I think is, at least for me, super important. The most significant people in my life have been the people who have seen my truest identity when either I didn't see it or wouldn't see it, and they spoke truth into my life. I mean, my, when I was in high school, my band director, at one point, he said, hey, you're Richard, you're really gifted. Like, music's a thing for you. You have a gift. Use it, use it. And he's, that's a good word. And I trusted him so much that then later on when I was making some decisions in my personal social life that weren't healthy decisions, that same band director, he looked at me and said, hey, Richard, you know what? You're better than that. You're better than that. Walk away. Man, do I need to hear that. I need people in my lives to, to hold up the mirror and say, hey, this is your gift. Hey, you're capable of more. Hey, Richard, uh, violence doesn't become you. Lust doesn't become you. Greed doesn't become you. I need people in my life. I, I, I don't just need sermons. I need people. <laughs> it, it grieves me, to be blunt, that for many people, discipleship has become a matter of podcast on the run. No. I mean, you want a podcast on the run? Great. At least you'll get a run in. That's valuable. <laughs> but what you really need is community. That's why, that's why church matters. Because you, you, you don't need me speaking into your life specifically. I can't. You need someone who knows you. That's why small groups matter. 
That's why community meals matter. That's why this like mops thing or serving in some way, volunteering in a shelter. These things matter because when we know people, then people know us. And when people know us, they can hold up a mirror and say, hey, listen, Eric, you're better than this. They can speak into our lives. My preaching pastor, or my preaching professor in, in seminary, after I preached, he said, he said, I don't know what you plan on doing, Richard. I, I hear the rumor is that you want to be a professor. I don't think you should be a professor. I think you should be a preacher because you have a gift of preaching. I need to hear that word. So there's generic sources of inspiration in our lives. Sermons, heroes, movies, books, but the people that change the course of our lives are people who look us in the eye and speak directly because they know something. And this woman knows something about David through the gift of prophecy. And she says, I know your future. You're called. You're anointed. You're the king. Don't resort to violence to get what God wants to freely give you anyway. Wait on it. It'll come. So you know what happens. Well, you probably don't know. Because <laughs> you haven't been studying this all week. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet you. Blessed be your discernment. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Peace. Hey, there's times when I'm Nabal. I'm proud. I'm uncaring. I'm foolish. I hang on to my stuff. There's times when I'm David, righteous indignation, tempted to match violence with violence. But the best way to avoid being Nabal or David is to become Abigail. <laughs> and how do I do that? Well, I act quickly. When, when I know the right thing to do, I need to do it. And if it's speak a word, if it's confess something, if it's forgive someone, if it's give, if it's step in and serve, if it's cross a social dividing line, when God is split, I need, to, I need to move. And then I need to learn how to live beyond myself. Like, I can no longer say regarding racism, classism, uh, uh, people who are persecuted for their ideologies politically, I can no longer say, you know, it's not my problem. Oh, no, it is my problem because as a Christ follower, I'm called to be a peacemaker. I'm called to it. So, so God will, will and does light my fire and moves me into situations. Act quickly, live beyond myself, bless others the way Abigail blessed David, the way Christ blesses us. And then lastly, but not least, by any means, I need to be a person of intercession because the servant interceded to Abigail. The servant said, you know what, I can't fix this, but Abigail, maybe you can do something. And Abigail did the one thing she could do. She acted, she moved into the situation, went directly to the source of the one who could solve it, gave that source gifts, spoke a word, and then asked that source to withhold his hand from violence. She intercedes to David too. And there isn't a person in the room who isn't called this morning to be a person of intercession. Over the course of the weekend, because of the death of uh, uh, Barbara Bush, I ended up, through my own curiosity, watching two uh, interviews. One of uh, George Bush, the, the son, uh, about his 
ministry, I'll call it, the American work that we've done as a nation uh, to work on mitigating the spread of AIDS in Africa. That's a Bush initiative. Hardly anyone knows about it. The other, the other interview I watched was Jimmy Carter and his ongoing work for Habitat for Humanity to end homelessness in America. Both these guys have stepped in, have brought gifts, have lived beyond themselves. And here's what I found intriguing. Both of them, Christians, different parties, but both of them, this is what I heard from both of them, Bush and Carter, uh, when asked, do you pray for uh, President Trump? They both unequivocally, without hesitancy, said, yeah, I do. I pray for our president. Pray that he'll be wise. Pray that he'll preserve our country. Pray he'll spare us from nuclear war. I pray. Eric's going to lead us in a second here, and we're called to pray. And so, you know, I wonder what cycle of violence is troubling to you this morning. Is it racism? Is it, is it the gap between the rich and the poor in our city? On the fact that people are being pushed out of the city who can no longer afford to live here? Is it, is it uh, the upcoming talks in North Korea and, and nuclear proliferation? Is it America's relationship with Russia? Is it much closer to home because you know someone who's a drunk and a fool and violent and, uh, and a woman who's stuck in a marriage? Like, shame on us if knowing what we know, we don't at the very least pray. And so we start this morning with intercession. And I'm going to ask you to use our prayer books to pray for any cycle of violence that you know of, asking that God would break it. And then we will pray with you. Father, meet us now as we, as we respond. Uh, our desire is to avoid the passivity that would continue to make us part of the problem. And rather, Father, to hear from you and step in and intercede and bless and serve. Would you take us there now, Father, in our response? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship together.